This is Reformers, the gritty details behind the world's greatest bootstrap success stories. In today's episode, I'm excited to interview Blaine Vess, the founder and former CEO of Student Brands, a bootstrapped ed tech company that sold to Barnes & Noble Education for $58.5 million. Blaine Vess founded Student Brands in his freshman dorm room in 1999. After slow and steady growth for the first five years, Student Brands hit an inflection point that saw tremendous user and revenue growth, much of which was due to an unconventional M&A strategy that Blaine executed, as well as a pivotal business model shift. In this episode, you'll learn Blaine's key insights and lessons learned, which can be implemented in your own business. Without further ado, please welcome Blaine Vess. So... Kicking things off, I would just love to hear more about your background before launching Student Brands. Yeah, of course. Um, so I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, initially a city called Darien, and eventually I lived in a city called Naperville. Um, my parents, uh, my mom was a social worker, my dad a lawyer, uh, my stepdad worked in corporate, and my stepmom worked at a, an advertising agency. So I had a lot of different people um, guiding me, different experiences there. Um, I eventually enrolled at North Central College in Naperville, and that was where um, my co-founder and I started Student Brands. And did you know you wanted to do something entrepreneurial, or did it just sort of happen? I did. I did. Um, in high school, I started a couple of businesses. Well, first, I, I learned to code like basic and visual basic and stuff like that. Um, eventually learned HTML, started like an online magazine in high school, as well as a business where I basically created banner advertisements for people and submitted people's sites to search engines, stuff like that. Um, so I think like that type of stuff really, really helped me be, you know, it gave me a leg up by the time I started student brands, just because I, it wasn't a ton of experience, but it was, it was something. And how did you come up with the idea to launch Student Brands? So in high school, my stepbrother actually showed me these sites where students could share like course notes, research papers, essays, stuff like that. So I was probably, I must have been like 17 at that time. So this is like 1998. And um, when I started college, I was just thinking about, you know, what, what, what would I want to start? Like what type of business is what I want to start? And I, of course I wanted to start something for students. And I remembered this space of like content sharing for, for students and just started digging around. And I, I seeing the sites that were out there, I figured I could start something competitive. And I also discovered that one of the sites um, that came up in my research was called oppapers.com. And it had been around since 1997, and um, the owner just kind of let it let it go away. Um, so it had a lot of links to it, and I checked the Whois database to see if it was registered, and it was actually available. So I just re-registered it and used that as kind of like a, a launch pad, a way to build momentum. Um, you know, it wasn't getting a, much traffic, but you know, 10, 20 visits a day is is a lot bigger than zero um, when you're starting out. And you were a college student when you started it, is that correct? That's correct. I, I had started college in like mid-September and 
launched it like first week of October. And were you working on this part-time while in school and taking classes? Were you doing summer internships or was this sort of your full-time thing and school was a side gig? Yeah. So um, school was a full-time thing. I, I was actually never good at school. I Early on, at least, I, I didn't know how to study. Um, I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't really know how to play the game of school. Um, so I spent a lot of time, we spent a lot of time building student brands, um, while going to school. And for me, at least, uh, I, I can't say this is true for my co-founders, but for me, at least I, I didn't get the best grades in school. Um, I eventually, um, let's see, I guess junior year, I started doing internships. So I ended up doing a total of four internships while in school. So that, that was the summer thing. And actually student brands, um, back then it was more common to have unpaid internships, at least in the entertainment where I interned. Um, so student brands helped me do that, but yeah, this was, you know, I would say I was a full-time student and this was full-time. It took up a lot of time. So I feel like today, a lot of students are working on side hustles. Uh, I'm sure a lot more than there were when you were starting student brands. How do you know when to make the leap from a side hustle or a part-time thing to something full-time? Like, what was your criteria? Um, so I have, I have my story there is not, is not a good one to follow because once you know, actually student brands started doing quite well um, when we switched it from an ad model to a subscription model. And I was working as a full-time consultant at the movie company, New Line Cinema, right out of college. So this is like 2005, 2006. Um, and in 2007, student brands actually, for the first time, brought in over a million dollars. And at the time we had like 90% net margins, you know, no, no, really no costs. We got all of our traffic for free from Google. We got all, all of our content free from students. And amazingly, we were able to charge a subscription um, to access our database. So I was still consulting at New Line um, even after we had crossed a million dollars in, in revenue. And even when we had crossed 3 million in 2008, I was still there making 48,000 a year. Um, the funny thing was, I really loved being there. I, it was my, it's my one, it was my one kind of corporate experience in, in my life. And the guy I worked for is still, I would say my closest friend, um, you know, 16, 16 years later. So the thing that finally got me to move on and go completely full-time, like double full-time, I guess, on student brands, um, was in 2008, New Line ended up laying off about 80% of the team. Um, the company had just gotten into some hard times in the financial crisis. Um, and they laid off, you know, my friend who I consulted for. So that, that pushed me to, to finally, you know, that was it, you know, and then, and then I was full-time at student brands from there. Um, of course, for anyone else, uh, I would suggest moving on much, much sooner than that. Um, I, it's hard to know the balance, I guess, because my thought at one point was I didn't know if student brands was going to be the thing. You know, I didn't know that this was going to last for as long as it did. So my thought was always, 
I'm going to, I'm going to build this company, see where it goes. I'm also going to work in an industry that I'm interested in and who knows, you know, maybe I'll be a, uh, an executive in that industry one day. And then I was actually doing contract programming for a number of years too. So I thought, you know, maybe one day I'll be like a full-time web developer or a CTO or something like that, which I was definitely not cut out for. Um, so I, I really believed in taking the multiple paths. Um, if I could recommend when to move on, um, you know, if someone starts bringing in, if someone starts bringing in, you know, their salary or like, I don't know what that is today, 150, 200,000 on one of these businesses, maybe that would be the time, but I would never, I would never advocate for it just because, you know, sometimes these things, they, they don't, they don't end up being that big of businesses. And if someone's enjoying their, what they're doing day to day, um, and you know, maybe, maybe what they're doing day to day leads to a, a bigger path of, you know, whether it's financial, a financial path or learning or whatever, or just day-to-day life purpose. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's the right moment to move on. I think someone really has to make that decision for themselves. Yeah. It's pretty refreshing to hear that because I feel like in this day and age, everyone is saying, Oh, everyone should be an entrepreneur. Everyone should do a startup. I feel like the way you handled it is just something that you could actually see more of today. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and kind of blend into my next question, which is did working on the side help you fund the beginnings of this business or did it just not require that much capital? It, it did help. It did help working on the side did help us fund the business. Um, we did initially, we had very minimal costs, you know, like, domain name, website hosting, which initially, you know, was like, I don't know, 20 or 30 bucks a month. Eventually we needed a dedicated server, which was, you know, a few hundred bucks a month or something. Um, But by that point we were making a decent amount of money on ads. um, Like, you know, and I'm talking like in the year 2000, we made maybe 15,000 on ads. Um, And even up to 2004, we only made like 60,000 on ads. Um, But that, that money helped grow the business. Um, but then I even looked at it as like, when I was at New Line, the first year that I worked there, I made 40,000. Um, so, you know, my salary plus the money I was making from student brands, yeah, it helped It helped grow the business. You know, when we, when we were, you know, when debating whether to do, you know, invest in this or that or, or buy a company like, yeah, I mean, there was a level of security there having additional money coming in from, you know, new line or contract programming or whatever it may have been. So, yeah, I, it helped a lot. And coming back to just this whole idea of financing the business, um, when you set out from the beginning, did you plan to bootstrap this over time or it just sort of happened that way? Um, let's see. I didn't know too much about venture capital at that time. And, you know, the idea of an angel investor, I had heard about that type of thing, but I think even then it was kind of like this mythical creature who, who, you know, (laughs) appeared and helped fund your business. Unlike today, you know, when there are just tons and tons of angels out there. So, um, I did ask a, 
you know, a family acquaintance, a guy I had met and really liked, you know, just like a, a local businessman, um, if he would uh, invest and, you know, help us hire a, a, develop, a web developer and, and just help us build in that way. And he actually gave me one of the best bits of advice that I've ever heard. And that was, he said, you know, no, I'm not going to invest. And you really need to learn how to um, build this thing yourself. So in case things break, you'll know how to fix them. And that that's actually what pushed me to learn PHP. And just, it, it really took like two months. And from there, you know, I, and eventually we were coding the business ourselves. It just, it wasn't that hard. Some sage advice from the, uh, the neighborhood friend. I love that. Totally. So you alluded earlier to flipping the switch from the ad model to subscription model. And that seems like it might've been uh, an inflection point for the business. Can you talk a little bit more that, about that decision, how you decided to make it? And, and was that the biggest inflection point on growth? Yeah. So I think it, it was the biggest inflection point. There's another one that I can touch on as well, but um Basically, let's see, most of the sites in the space were ad supported for, uh, you know, let's say until like 2003, something like that. And then someone entered our space with a new model, and that was the subscription model. Um, actually, the, there was one other model, and that was sites that sold individual documents to people rather than selling access to a, a database. Um, for me, it's funny, like I, my co-founder, Chris and I had dabbled in the, we, we had started a dating site as well. And through that business, we'd gotten some chargebacks, which I became like really afraid of at the time. I actually had a merchant account shut down because we had too many chargebacks. And so as other companies in student brands, space were switching to the subscription model, I hesitated a bit longer than I should have. I know that for a fact. Um, but yes, I mean, when we finally switched to the subscription model in 2005, it was, it was a new day. I mean, it was ridiculous um, how people were, to go from this ad supported model to a subscription model overnight and have people completely willing to pay to access the service was just insane. Um, so I would say that that was the initial big inflection point where, like I said, in, in 04, we went from making like 60K on ads to 07, crossing that million dollar mark and then just growing pretty rapidly from there. Um, but the other the other component there was we we started acquiring our competitors, a number of the older sites in the space. Um we were just, you know, we'd search Google, see who the top competitors are, were. And actually we knew some of them as well already. And um, we just started buying whatever we could. And this came out of another company in the space, wanted to sell his business. He talked to me about it and unfortunately ended up selling to someone else. But he really opened my eyes to the possibility of, of buying, um, of rolling up our space. And so starting in 2008 is when we started buying our competitors. And 
at this point, we knew our combination of like getting a lot of traffic from SEO plus that first inflection point of figuring out the subscription model. Um, we knew we had a, a better model than most of the businesses in the space. Many of them had not switched to the subscription model. So we just started buying whatever we could. And over time, we ended up buying like 15 or so competitors in the space. All the way through, like we did, I think it was three acquisitions um, the same year that we were acquired by Barnes & Noble Education. So that, that became a, a key thing for us. It's really interesting and also ahead of its time. I mean, roll-ups, I feel like, are happening left and right. You're seeing a ton of them in Amazon now. Providence Equity, I don't know if you know yes. them, but they are doing, I think they've done about 20 different roll-ups in different categories, ranging from like churches to funeral homes yes. uh, to, to, to alcohol data. Uh, how did you navigate that without that backing of a private equity firm? How did you do all the valuations? Like, what was that process like? So the crazy thing was um, most of our acquisitions were pretty small in the early days. Um, I actually remember the prices. We, you know, we bought a couple sites from one guy for like 35 grand. Um, we bought a site where I basically just kind of bothered the owner. <laughs> bothered is a strong word, but I checked in <laughs> regularly trying to buy this thing and she really did not want to sell it. And finally, I just offered 20 grand um, out, of, out of nowhere. The site had no, no revenue or anything. And um, that ended up being one of our most popular sites. Um, it had a lot of SEO value. I mean, I know within, within year one, we'd calculated it, it brought in 400K for us um, with basically no additional expenses. So we did a lot of those small acquisitions. Um, you know, I'd say our, our biggest one ended up being, I think it was 5 million bucks, but, um, many of those early ones were, you know, 50 K hundred K, um, 200 K that kind of thing. And, um, so we really, we didn't need to raise capital to do the acquisitions. Um, and at the time it was, you know, someone told me, well, you just, you know, three X is a good multiple, like three X profits. And I was like, all right. So I pretty much, you know, we actually knew how much these businesses were making because there was one advertiser in the space that advertised on many of those, many of these sites. And we were very familiar with how they did it. Um, so we would just offer basically three X what this advertiser was paying. And, you know, that worked at least, I don't know, seven to 10 times. And then some of the others had slightly different valuations, but that was, that was how we did it. Do you think this tactic of buying competitors is underutilized today or is it just a different time? I think it's underutilized. I think here's a, a funnier example. We, when, when Quizlet was getting big, if you're familiar with Quizlet, the, yeah, the flashcard site, um, we thought, okay, we should we should do something in that space too. And rather than just building from scratch, we went to Google, typed in flashcards. I ended up speaking with, I think, the top five businesses in the space. And when I say businesses, these were usually companies that were run by one person. Um, and we ended up buying two of the companies, uh, you know, maybe spending 
I don't know, like 600K or something like that total. And then we did buy a more expensive domain name called cram, cram cram.com. But we basically took those two sites, you know, merged them into cram.com. We ended up starting out with, I can't remember the exact numbers, but certainly tens of millions, if not a hundred million plus flashcards. Um, So buying that content was huge. And then going back to our early roots of buying momentum, you know, buying Google rankings, you know, being, being number one, when you type in flashcards has a lot of value. So we were able to start with those two things and, you know, we, we did not win that space by any means. Um, I think we added some value though. Uh, Quizlet certainly won that space by far, but, um, you know, I think of other companies who dove into flashcards. Um, there's one who raised like 20 million bucks to basically do the same thing. And they ended up selling to Chegg for say 20 million bucks. And it's just, I, I'm, what what's mind blowing to me is if you're raising that much money, why not do some of these acquisitions in combination? You know, like I I'm I guess when I'm the way I think about it today is like there should be a, there should be a better balance. Like people are able to raise a good amount of money today. Um, why start at ground zero? You know, if you're able to buy a solid bootstrapped or even if it's not bootstrapped, a solid competitor in, in the space you're trying to enter for a reasonable price and get that momentum. Um, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm all for it. I, I, I like that model a lot. Yeah, I feel like given entrepreneurs are by definition very optimistic mm-hmm. people, I feel like there's some kind of bias where they think it's, you know, they can create it themselves. It's better to, you know, build it, have it be, you know, quote unquote proprietary mm-hmm. And there's maybe even some allure to investors about building something versus just acquiring. But I agree with you. I think a lot of things that founders are building, uh, a lot of times, you know, some of the basic fundamental layers already exist and they can just go out and buy it for cheap rather than have to, you know, hire an entire team or waste a year on the development. Totally. Totally. Um, So just, you know, flipping to the other side of things. So we spoke about your successes and, and some of the key uh, leverage you pulled to increase the growth and really have an inflection point in the business. Were there any big mistakes you made along the way? Potentially some that other entrepreneurs should avoid? Yeah, I think my mistakes are related to cautiousness and being too conservative um, at, at, at the time. And I, and I go back to, you know, I should have moved on from new line sooner in, in my journey. Once we were doing that well financially, you know, even though I was really full time at student brands, even though I had other stuff going on, I mean, it was my life. I should have moved on sooner. So I could have dedicated more time to it. Um, Additionally, you know, we didn't, we didn't really professionalize the business until 2011, meaning, you know, it was just, me and my co-founders working out of our house. We did have a small remote team eventually, but we didn't go bigger soon enough. Um, and it, like I mentioned earlier, I, I think I did it. I coded for eight, the first eight years of the company. And it wasn't until I learned about like, at the time it was called Odesk. It's now called Upwork. 
um, where I finally, I found, I found a developer on there. I remember, I remember what I was paying. It was $8 and 88 cents an hour. Um, I know that's not common at all anymore, but this guy changed my life. You know, like he took over the coding. He was frankly doing it way better than I was. Um, you know, I should have, we should have brought on people like that sooner. Um, so I, I think there's a, I don't know, I, no regrets on my end. Um, but I think we could have had a slightly better balance of doing distributions to ourselves versus uh, investing into the business and, and bringing on great people sooner to, to help us really grow. So those are the, those are the couple things that come to mind for me. On the team front, how, how many people ended up working for student brands by the time of exit? Yeah, we had about 40 people here in LA and then 40 people in an office in, in India, you know, doing a variety of, of positions as well. For the ones that were LA or US based, did you find it difficult to attract talent without the allure of a venture back business or without the allure of being a unicorn? How did you think about hiring? How did you find the right people? It was very difficult to attract talent. We, we used a lot of recruiters. That was, we just, we had to, and thankfully we had the money to do it. But um, yeah, you know, when you're bootstrapped, no one really, you know, no, first off, yeah, like you said, like people don't really know about you unless you've been written about like, the, the very big bootstrap businesses like Basecamp or MailChimp, that kind of stuff where, where they end up getting a lot of attention. But for some, for a company like ours, you know, we weren't growing super rapidly. We had a very profitable business growing nicely. Um, but that's not, that's not very interesting in, in TechCrunch. And we weren't on our way to becoming a unicorn. Um, you know, it's just, it's just harder. So yeah, recruiters, we ended up using recruiters a lot. Thankfully, we, we brought on some great team members who, um, you know, referred great folks to us too. Um, and finally, when I, when we went out to hire a president, we used a recruiter uh, for that search as well. And um, the, the firm we used was just super helpful in um, selling us and, uh, getting our vision out there. And thankfully we were able to attract some really great talent from there. And especially once we brought Thomas, who ended up being our CEO, once we brought him on, he brought on some fantastic people too. So, you know, there was, I would say more and more belief in the company, but all that to say it was, it was hard. I do still hear, you know, companies I talk with all the time, they're always looking for developers, right? They're, it, it sounds like it's, it's still hard, even if you're, even if you're um, out there and have gotten good press and you've raised a good amount of money, it's still hard. But um, yeah, it was always a, a bit of a struggle for us. I'm loving these insights because I feel like a lot of them are just counterintuitive. I feel like I hear that bootstrap companies shouldn't be spending money on resources like a recruiter mm -hmm. or anything that's not core to the business. People would say, oh, you should do the hiring yourself. But I like hearing this because, you know, maybe you're spending a little bit more on the recruitment fees, but if you're actually getting the right people, that ends up saving so much more money in the long term than getting the wrong people. Totally. Yeah. I mean, 
we we never loved getting those those hefty bills but um we got <laughs> great people through recruiters and there were a number who just ended up being really reliable and providing a good amount of talent to us so i, I definitely recommend that path so you get great people on board you're growing the business that's now a subscription model and eventually gets large enough where you end up exiting the business. I believe the Barnes and Noble for a reported $58.5 million. Yep. Can you talk about the M&A process? How did you decide to sell? How did you go about exploring opportunities? Yeah. So we initially thought about, you know, we initially got the idea that, that we could sell this thing. Um, much earlier, say in like 2009, I had a friend asked me like, well, what do you guys want to do? And I was like, well, maybe, maybe we'll sell it one day. I don't know. And he was like, you gotta, you gotta talk to this guy. And he introduced us to an investment banker um, who was not an expert on the space, but was a good guy and helped us try to sell the company. And we had talked to at that time, it was like talking to a number of search funds, um, some growth equity firms, but we didn't we didn't get any bites. And I think, I think, for a number of reasons, like our 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 brand was off. We were still called oppapers.com from that original site we'd bought. Our messaging was off. You know, I I do think today if anyone saw anyone met a company run by three guys working out of a house that's making millions of dollars in profit, I think there would be a lot of buyers, but back then um, it was a bit different. So that, you know, that period in 2009 kind of got us thinking more about it. And we actually even in what I want to say 2014 um, after we had, changed our messaging and after VCs had gotten more familiar with the space, thanks to some new companies like Course Hero and Study Blue and others that had gotten venture backed and, and entered the space, um, we started getting calls all the time from growth equity firms, invest all sorts of types of investors. And um, we, we tried to, to take on some money in, I think it was, yeah, 2014. Um, it, it just didn't work out for a variety of reasons. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually glad it didn't. But um, so, you know, I guess my point of mentioning these things is like, we were, we were on this path for a while. Um, it wasn't until, frankly, let's see, we, so we sold in 2017. For me, I was, you know, Chris and I, at least were, we were 18 years into the company. Um, I was at least, I was ready, you know, like we, we'd built something great. Uh, I was ready to move on. I was actually in Y Combinator with my other company at the time already. Um, it was, it was, it was time. And we happened to meet Barnes and Noble education kind of casually. And, um, they ended up really being interested in the business. We were really interested in them. You know, we had a banker, we, we went through a normal process, but they just ended up being a perfect fit for us. So, you know, it seems like it was a, a one-time deal trying to sell this company, but it, I would say it was a path we were on for, you know, eight years um, to get to that point. And so you had 
offers or were entertaining offers to potentially raise a growth equity round versus go with M and A round. It wasn't just like, Hey, we're selling the company. Well, yeah, we, we had those types of offers in, you know, say 2014, 15, even, even up until I think we discussed something in 2016, but um, eventually, you know, we decided that going all the way, selling the company was the way to go. Um, and that was, that was the path we decided to take. Yeah. I find this topic to be fascinating because I feel like it's probably one of the most difficult decisions to make. Like there's a big financial component, but also a big emotional component. Um, so interesting to hear about your mindset and your framework at that point in time. Yeah, there, there is, there is a big emotional component too. Um, I, I kind of understood it having done a lot of, having acquired a lot of companies in the space, you know, and talking to a lot of founders, people often thinking like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do if I, if I sell this company, I'm, I'm just not sure. Um, and just wanting to stick with it for that reason. For me, by the time we sold, I, I was ready to move on. Um, I learned afterward, you know, you know, I had the same job basically for 18 years um, at Student Brands. And the emotional component kicked in a bit afterward of just like, gee, I don't, I actually, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, and it's taken me a few years to kind of get back on, on a new path, but um, no regrets. I, I, I was ready, ready to, to move on at that point. Love it. Well, I'm excited to talk about what you're doing now, but before we do that, you mentioned NY Combinator while you were selling the business with a new with a new company. Uh, how did you decide to go to YC? Like, what was the idea behind that? You had just bootstrapped a company. You'd done so very successfully. How did you decide to go through an accelerated program and, and you know, specifically YC? Yeah, so I had stumbled upon this space. It's called the Airport Concierge. And basically what we did was we helped people get through the company was called solve and we helped people get through immigration and customs quickly when they were traveling overseas. So like no waiting in lines. And I had stumbled upon the space when I was just doing some traveling in Asia in 2013. And I never forgot about this space. And as I dug in deeper, I realized there was, this was a hard to book service, even though it was available at hundreds of airports around the world, it was really hard to book. And um, for that reason, I thought, okay, let's, let's create a software platform and make it easy to book, you know, just again, like try to professionalize this, this, this space. And um, I was initially thinking, okay, we'll build a pretty software platform and maybe we could buy like a couple of companies in the space. And we, we did explore that. It, it didn't work out from a timing perspective with, with either of the founders we were speaking with. And my co-founder, Sean, and I were just like, you know, we could have just built it. We could have just gone the sort of standard bootstrap route, you know, build it from the ground up um, slowly over time. But I don't know. We got this like YC bug. We we're like, let's just, let's just apply. Let's just apply and see what happens. So we did, and uh, thankfully we got in, and I really enjoyed it. Like I learned so much, you know, even being a second time founder, you know, I, I hadn't built something 
early for a long time and just, you know, being scrappy, being in a new space. Um, I, I tried to go into YC just pretending like I didn't know anything, you know, like not forgetting the good lessons that I had, but really just trying to build in the way that, that YC teaches you to build. And so I think all of us, you know, Sean, my co-founder and Justin, my other co-founder, um, we just, we learned a ton and I, I would recommend it to other people. I mean, I, you know, I must admit, like, I'm not sure I'm still figuring out whether I'm, I'm a founder who's built to raise money. I, I, and I, I say that because like, I just take it on as such a huge responsibility, you know, even if I'm raising money from a, a friend or colleague or, or fund or whoever that I know, like, yeah, if, if, if this doesn't work out, they're going to be fine. Um, I, I just, I, I just take on that res- responsibility in a huge way. So I wasn't as keen to, to raise a bunch of money and go that path. And even now, like I still, I'm still figuring out what that, what that balance looks like for me, but our experience in YC was, was awesome. Um, we did actually, we ended up raising a little bit of money before our demo day. Um, and, but after our demo day, my co-founders and I just kind of realized like this was not the business that we wanted to be running for the next five to 10 years. Um, it was, it's a space that I'm actually still very curious about, but you know, there were moments like being yelled at by some celebrities, travel agent, you know, um, people calling and screaming at us because, you know, someone in it wasn't picked up on time in Italy or they were picked up, but this one thing didn't go perfectly. Um, we just kind of realized like, all right, <laughs> this is, this is really, you know, we could have, we could have resolved many of these issues, I'm sure. But, um, it, it ended up, this was not, this was not our passion. Um, especially if we're talking about a typical timeline of, of five to 10 years. So we ended up actually giving back the money we raised. Um, and we weren't necessarily expecting this to happen, but one of our partners, a company called Black Lane in, in Germany ended up um, really wanting to buy the company. So the company landed with them and it's, it's, you know, at this point um, integrated into, you know, you can book it through Black Lane um, in a number of airports around the world. So. Very cool. I give you a lot of credit for realizing that and, and basically giving money back to your investors and turning the corner. I feel like there's a sunk cost fallacy where people you know, feel like they're so deep they can't actually turn around, but uh, you were able to do so. So I commend you for that. Thanks. Yeah, it was it was a hard decision, especially because um, Michael Seibel and Aaron Harris were our, were our partners at YC. Oh, that's and, awesome! I worked for Aaron at Tudor Spree oh, as an intern. Oh, cool! That's that's awesome. Yeah, he's an ama- amazing guy. He is. He is. Um, but telling them that we were going to you know give back the money and and move on was like, you know. I don't know, telling our parents we were going to drop out of college or something, you know, it was like, it was, it was just not that conversation. Um, it was not fun uh, because we really, we really admired them and um, appreciated, you know, the experience we had through YC. But um, yeah. So other than that, uh, it was, it was the right move. 
Great. I'm happy to hear that. And then, you know, to finish off, uh, what have you been doing since? I know you're very active on you know, the angel investing side, but what are you working on these days? I believe you have both a company and, and perhaps a fund. So I would love to just learn more about uh, where you're spending your time. Yeah. So the, the past few years I've spent, um, in, I've spent a lot of time investing in, you know, venture capital funds as well as startups. And so I'm finally formalizing my investment activities under a, a company called Immeasurable, um, which I guess you, you could say as a family office, but acts, you know, it's, it's really, it's really just me running this thing. And, um, meeting about meeting fellow investors, meeting startups and, and funds and just, you know, I'm the sole decision maker. So, but that, that ends up taking up a lot of my time, especially the early stage investment aspect of it. I talk to a lot of founders, um, which, which I enjoy for multiple reasons. Um, you know, not only do I like helping, but I find that I just learned so much, um, talking to these companies as I'm sure you experience as, as an investor too. Um, and then otherwise my wife and I are launching a non-alcoholic sparkling wine called semblance. And, um, it's going to launch next month in, in February. Um, and it's sort of a, the first it's the, it is the first product in a bigger vision for us of helping people reduce their alcohol consumption. And actually both of us drink alcohol. We're not, we're not at all anti-alcohol, but um, especially as we've gotten older, we've learned to appreciate uh, <laughs> not having hangovers or not being tired and just being, just being healthy. So we're trying to put out some, some products that people really enjoy and, and help people fit in, in these environments, you know, post COVID once people are doing after work parties or family dinners, you know, whatever it is, uh, just having some, some really good alternatives. So that's those are the those couple things really take up most of my time these days. Are you going to be selling the product DDC or is it um, going to be in retail as well? We're starting out um, just DDC. Uh, we're starting out that way. We want to get it out there, get some feedback, and um, once we're fully comfortable of where we're at. Uh, yeah, we'll start pushing. We'll start pushing to retail. Once restaurants and and bars are are back in order, we'll start pushing there as well. Um, but it, it's 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 funny. Like this is I've never built a company in in this space before, um, in the D 2 C space. Period. So uh, it's a learning experience for us. Um, but we've had a lot of fun with it, and and it is amazing what you can do today um, with. Facebook ads and Instagram ads, you know, especially for this type of thing where we can push it out to a number of people, get some feedback and, and iterate from there. Yeah, absolutely. Also, the interesting aspect for non-alcoholic wine is you don't have to deal with the three-tier system. So you can advertise and sell, you know, cross-state, whereas people can't, you know, people on traditional alcohol can't. Yes, exactly. That makes it so much easier. So we're, we're excited about that, too. Great. Well, I'll, I'll definitely be your first customer. So let me know when uh, the site is live. Will do. Will do. Thanks, Andrew. Well, thank you uh, for doing this. Really, really insightful. And, um, you know, looking forward to tracking 
both your, you know, investing stuff and, and also your new wine business and whatever else you go on to do. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew.